1: Hello, welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. I'm excited this week to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Cal Newport. This is his fourth time on the show. If you're familiar with Cal, you know that he's the author of So Good They Can't Ignore You, Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, and this time he's back to talk about his new book, A World Without Email, Reimagining Work, In an age of communication overload. And as we talk about in this conversation, there is a through line in all of Cal's work in terms of doing good work, being able to focus to do good work, collaborating with others to do good work, and what's wrong with the current way that we do information work or knowledge work. And also in this conversation, I kind of call this out and say that this is a book that's ahead of its time in terms of the changes that are needed to the knowledge work workspace and the change that needs to come will be slow. But it's good to get in on this now and then even then revisit this book as well as Cal's other books. If you're a fan of Cal Newport, you're going to love this conversation. If you're not familiar with Cal, I'll make sure to link up to his other work in the show notes. But I do want to preemptively say that Cal has offered to come back on the show soon and to do a Q&A style conversation with listener questions. The quickest and easiest way to do that is to ping me on Twitter. I am at Eric with a K, the letter J, F-I-S-H-E-R. Ping me there. Let me know that you have a question. My DMs are open. That way I can keep all your questions as you think of them while reading Cal's book or listening to this conversation funneled into that future episode. I'll give you credit and all that good stuff. So again, tweet me and or DM me on Twitter at Eric with a K, the letter J, F-I-S-H-E-R. All right, I'll get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Cal Newport. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome back for the fourth time Cal Newport. Cal, welcome back.
0: Well, thanks for having me. There's a few things I enjoy more than uh, geeking out on some of these issues with you, Eric.
1: I was trying to describe this ahead of you know in pre-record, but I wanted to save this line for actually hitting the record button. As as I was reading your new book, I felt like. You were coming across as Morpheus from The Matrix, and I'm going to read this quote. It says, what you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. I kept thinking that this was you as Morpheus saying, there's something wrong with productivity and and knowledge work. And it's email and you and you don't know why, but you know that it's there. And (laughs) so I wanted to throw that out there.
0: Well, if, if not for this pandemic, <laughs> I would have been book touring with a, a leather trench coat and sunglasses. I <laughs> would
1: have been, I just that would have been a, awesome. <laughs> that's a great mental picture. Oh, my gosh. Uh, anybody out there want to create that, go ahead and then send that my way. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, I, I was really fascinated by this book. And of course, I knew this was coming for a while because you'd, you'd mentioned it when we recorded last time. You know, th- Again, I said, this is the fourth time you've been on the show. The first two times we were talking deep work, the book Deep Work. Uh, and then last time it was digital minimalism. But what's interesting to me, and of course kind of didn't surprise me, was that you started this book, which I guess I should name check here first, A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload, that you had started this book back as you were finishing up Deep Work, but kind of put it off. I suspect the reason why is kind of has to do with that quote that I was giving you from uh, Morpheus and the Matrix is that it's hard to pin this problem down. This is a very <laughs> uh, amorphous kind of a problem. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. But at the same time, it's like, I can't figure out how to pin it down. So how did you come to the conclusion that you had to tackle this problem?
0: I mean, you're you're right that I started this right away after deep work. I was trying to pin it down. It might even been before the book came out, right? So I had submitted deep work I started working on this before it had even been published. I, I was trying to pin that down in my notes, but certainly many of the early interviews in that book were done in two thousand and sixteen because I, I you know was going back and fact checking those those notes recently. It became the obvious thing to write almost immediately after I finished deep work. you know in that book, Deep work, I was talking about focus and undistracted concentration produces more than distracted concentration i didn't really get into why this was an issue though i was like yeah we're probably checking email too much and and using slack but let's just talk about focus and how to train it and how to prioritize it and and maybe we'll all get better and it was quickly you know made apparent uh you know wait a second this problem is much deeper the degree to which our need to constantly communicate permeates our work is overwhelming that the the depth of the source of this issue the 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 issue that made deep work rare was way more fundamental than I had realized and so I started pulling the thread there like okay so why is this why do we spend so much time on email is this easily fixable and it was this epic tale that unfolded and I ended up having to draw from you know the history of email from psychology from neuroscience from Uh, anthropology, from from sociology, from the philosophy of technology, and a lot of original thinking as well. I mean, it was this huge, epic story of an entire sector of our economy, essentially accidentally falling into the wrong way of working and getting stuck. And because of that, it was making tens of millions of people miserable and keeping our economy-wide productivity metrics stagnating year after year. It was like this epic failure why did that happen? Why are we stuck? And how do we get out of it? it seemed like a Magnus Opus t- style book. So it took me a while to write it. I, p- I paused to write digital minimalism because a digital minimalism was touching on something that seemed very, very timely. I mean, it was right at this transition point where people were switching from. I love my phone. I love my phone to my God, my phone. And that happened so quickly. I wanted to be there at the beginning because I knew a lot of people would be writing about it. And I had no fear that someone was going to scoop me on a world without email because again it was this epic story that was taking me years to report and when i was out there talking about these ideas no one was there it really was this morpheus type situation no one had taken that red pill and they were just uh, you know they they were doing the the neo their neo equivalent i guess of you know better inbox hacks and you know like better <laughs> email clients and batching their email i had no 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 realization that there was actually this whole other matrix you could see and would completely blow your mind and so it was so epic I had no concern of putting it on pause temporarily to write that more timely book because no one was there. And then I came back to it and finished it. And I'm I'm just glad to finally have it out because it's a grand tale.
1: Yeah, when you first mentioned it to me privately, and and I had kind of gotten a glimpse of it, I believe. Oh gosh, I forget his name. You you had kind of gone into it a little bit. Why am I blanking on his name? My uh, used to be at Vox. What's his name?
0: Oh right, Ezra Klein. Ezra yeah, Klein. I, I went into yeah. it with a, who, who I just um, I just talked to the other day. So yeah. that, uh, I go into this again round two very soon. You'll see on his show, but yeah. So and that was early, by the way. That Klein interview. That was my first. I think it was the first time I was on Ezra's show, which was about deep work. And that would have been, you know, 2017 or something. And and I was. Yeah. So it's a long it's a long story.
1: Well, to to Ezra's credit, he got you to reveal some of your thoughts on email in that. And so then when you you uh, mentioned to me privately, you know, in pre or post conversation last time we were talking it made natural sense, and I immediately said, no one is out there thinking about this right now. And so I knew that it was going to be coming. I just didn't know when. Um, I want to jump into what specifically the problem with email is, which is huge, and uh, you know, there's a lot of context to set up. Obviously, I can see the ties with this. You know, tying back to deep work, tying back to digital minimalism. Um, So it's kind of in a sense like this. It did make sense to have those both come out first because it kind of sets the stage or begins to at least. But um, I want to make a couple disclaimers here from for those that you know maybe haven't heard you talk about this uh, before in terms of deep work as well as how that ties into technology. Is that you're not a luddite. You're not anti-technology. It's just that. We need to be treating the tools like they should be treated. Sometimes there's inherently some, some negative, um you know, inner intervention that needs to happen. <laughs> but that that ultimately, you know, I think somebody would say, well, it's not email's not a problem. Isn't isn't it more like a communication problem? And I think the answer there is yes and no, <laughs> maybe. But uh and some would even say, well, forget email. What about Slack? We're gonna get to all of that, but but first I wanna start to paint this picture, just simply put, what's the problem with email? Why do we need a world without it? Right.
0: And so we'll we'll start by maybe making an obvious point which is uh, contrary to maybe what the title of the book implies email as a tool is a fine tool uh, if i need a digital asynchronous message and information transfer protocol smtp pop three these are great options and there's great clients it's easier than using a fax machine if i need to send you something it's easier than voicemail it's easier than interoffice memos. office so in isolation great tool there's a reason why it spread it took communication we were doing made it easier The villain in my book is actually what I call the hyperactive hive mind workflow. Now, this is an approach to collaboration that was made possible by the arrival of email. And this is an approach to collaboration where you just figure things out on the fly with back and forth unscheduled ad hoc messaging. Hey, Eric, what about this? Can you jump on the call? What about this? Have you heard about this client? Are we going to do something about this? Have you seen that? Let me see you this message. Can you get back to me on that? Just like you would have a natural back and forth conversation if you're in the same room with someone, the hyperactive hive mind workflow said, hey, you can do this with everyone now because we have low friction digital communication tools like email. So email made that possible. It wasn't possible before. As I document in the book, email spread initially because it was improving existing tools like fax machines, voicemails and memos. But once it arrived in offices, it brought with it as a, a sort of side effect, the arrival of this hyperactive hive mind workflow. Uh, Then we later got tools like Slack, but I don't really care about the tool. I mean, Slack was just a a more efficient tool for implementing the hyperactive hive mind. The issue here is the hyperactive hive mind. And we'll get into it in more detail. But the the reason why this is the villain in the book is that when all of your collaboration is happening with this ad hoc back and forth messaging, it necessitates from you constant tending to the channels on which that communication is happening. Because this is how work is being coordinated. You have to hit that message ping pong ball back across the net every time it gets to you except for you're playing on 25 different ping pong tables at the same time. So you have to run around frantically hitting balls back on all of these, on all these tables. So you have to constantly be tending these channels. And as I document, this is a cognitive catastrophe from your ability to think clearly. It makes us anxious. It it, uh, reduces our ability to think clearly. And then it just exhausts our mind. We can't even get through a full workday with anything near our normal cognitive capacities. If we're doing this, it also makes us miserable. It really conflicts with the way our brain is wired in a way that is sort of Uh, uniquely is miserating. And as an added sort of punch in the gut, the fact that you've taken all friction out of communication increases the amount of work on everyone's plate and tends to push it to a place that's unsustainable. So now we have more work on our plate and we're trying to work on it in a cognitive state that makes it almost impossible and has a side effect of making us unhappy. So, you know, when I say a world without email, what I mean is a world without the hyperactive hive mind workflow, and it is a world that would be much, much better than where we are now.
1: I as I was reading this, just it, it hit. It pushed all the buttons for me because I, I was a communications major in college, and one of the most fulfilling moments for me was taking com theory. And so to go through and to be thinking about things like you know, but taking the friction out of the communication, the the ability to in a digital world create something out of nothing, and then send it and in, in CC form to many people. You know, the analog equivalent of that would have been to have written a message and then magically had it duplicate physically and then be sent out in, you know, like, I mean, I guess we do have the ability to do that. I can create a document, hit print and have them all come out and then, you know, but the friction there is that I don't have to sit there and fold it into an envelope, lick the, you know, lick every single envelope, put a stamp on it, put it in, walk to a mailbox, put it in there. Instead, I can zip that off to those, those people instantly. And they all receive it, and yes. th- yeah. So it it just kind of blew my mind. But again, it, it kind of hit, hit in the right spot as well.
0: Well, and and just as a, as a quick aside, we actually you know uncovered a case study that emphasized the impact of re- removing that friction, and that's the IBM story. Where I talked to one of the engineers, Adrian Stone, who was involved with the initial deployment of internal email at the IBM's headquarter in Armonk in the late 1980s. And they had done this very careful study of exactly how much communication happens in our office, right? Like how many voicemails, how many memos, because computers were expensive. And they wanted to provision enough of a mainframe to take all of that existing communication and move it over to email. But they didn't want to over provision because it was expensive. So they knew how much communication was happening in the office. They deploy email. There's no trainings. There's no memos. There's no uh, discussions with bosses about how you should use it. Within three days, they melted down the server by communicating five to six times more <laughs> than they ever had before. Within three days, just the presence of the low friction tool incredibly expanded the amount of communication that people did. So your, your thought experiment there has been validated in the real world. The mere presence of this tool changes the way we work. And it's not by our design. It's just this sort of unstable back and forth interaction between the tools' capabilities and complex social dynamics.
1: A low hanging fruit analogy would probably be akin to having the refrigerator always open, sitting right next to you uh while you're on the on the couch and the TV's going and you can literally reach over and grab something at any time, how fat you would get.
0: Except for you'd have to change that analogy to also say your job depended on you constantly eating out of oh, the refrigerator, gosh. too.
1: Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the problem. Yes. And, and now I'm thinking of, uh, you know, the, the spaceship in WALL-E. So, um, geez, the, just the context here. I, I think one of the things that really struck me, was, and I, I had to sit and think about this for a while. And, and again, this goes back to deep work. This goes back to digital minimalism. It's this idea that our brains don't work in uh, parallel processing in terms of information.
0: Yeah, uh, we context switching is poison to concentration. It is poison to thinking clearly. It is poison to mental sustainability. So the ability to keep doing things with your mind without getting exhausted. To switch your attention from one thing to another is really demanding because there's a lot of biological chemistry style uh, magic that has to happen within your brain. We have to inhibit certain semantic networks. We have to amplify others. I get in. I talked to one of the neuroscientists who, who's an expert on this when I was working on the book. It's very complicated and it takes time. If you have to keep checking an inbox and going back to the main thing you're doing, you keep sort of starting this expensive process and then ripping your attention back while it's only halfway going on. And this causes this cognitive pileup, which is why it's so exhausting. And I think everyone feels this, right? It's a common experience. Like I'm trying to write something, but I have to keep checking my email because I'm in a conversation with my boss about scheduling a meeting. and I have to you know, ping pong, right? I'm waiting for the ball to come back across the net and then I have to knock it back to his side. So I have to keep checking this inbox. Every time you're checking it though, you're causing this incomplete context switch. And then after a while, you're like, I'm having a hard time writing. I'm having a hard time concentrating. You spend more time in the email and then by one o'clock, you're just exhausted. Like I can't think anymore. It's not a failure of will. You just tired out your brain by doing all that context switching. I mean, it would be the equivalent as if you had a physical job. Right, like you were uh, wheeling the iron slag at a at a factory, and your boss kept calling you up, and you had to run up ten flights of stairs to go talk to him, then run down ten flights of stairs. And by one, you're like, oh, my legs are exhausted. I can't I can't push the iron slag anymore. It's because you were doing this physically exhausting thing all day long. Having to check an inbox quickly again and again and again is that cognitive equivalent of running up ten flights of stairs. It's an expensive operation, and when you when you cut it short in the middle of it and repeat it again and again. It's a disaster for our human brain. It's very difficult to do almost anything productive with that brain and it's going to exhaust you.
1: Yeah. Not to mention the fact that, you know, we're talking about one inbox or, you know, a collective Slack inbox, so to speak, not to mention all the different inboxes that are out there that create uh, this tension when it comes to social media for many people. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. So, social media that's unrelated to your work, it's still the same hit, right? So, if you're doom scrolling like pandemic news, while also working, you're, you're just amplifying those hits even more. It's completely different context. You're trying to, you know, unless you're Dr. Fauci, it's probably a, a, a context unrelated to the main work you're doing. And every time you switch over there and look at uh, a Twitter thing, especially if it's something that makes you angry or something like this, so now you're getting the emotional systems aroused, and then you try to wrench your attention back to writing computer code or a memo or having a conversation with someone you're managing, good luck, right? I mean, now you're, now you're running up 20 flights of stairs, you know, between every delivery of the iron slag. You're not going to last long.
1: And we're basically running back and forth and, and basically accumulating attention residue throughout an entire day and just creating massive havoc on our brains.
0: It's massive havoc. I, I honestly think this factor alone has been holding back our entire economy. I mean, we know non-industrial productivity metrics have stagnated for years and years and years. I think they would have even been declining if not for the fact that we basically just added these off the books, second shifts of work early in the morning or late at night, because we we, we've given over so much of our day to attending these inboxes and find it so hard to think that we basically just added unrecorded hours of extra work. And even doing that just helped to keep us roughly at a steady state in, in, in terms of our non-industrial productivity, where you would think with all of these hundreds of billions of dollars being invested to have lightning fast, Zero friction, completely ubiquitous, high speed internet field communication, wherever we are in the world, all these innovations, you think like, wow, we must be shooting up the productivity charts. And in fact, we're going the other direction. I think this is why. Yeah, I mean, we we're it's like we're taking a reverse neurotropic. Like, what can we do to make us as dumb as possible <laughs> in an economy where all of the value is created by brains?
1: Yeah, it, I I This is why I had to – I mean, I I just couldn't help but pull that quote from The Matrix in because it just felt like this on-call all the time of a knowledge worker. You know, my pager constantly going off, or even when it wasn't going off, we'd gotten so much into that cycle of responsiveness that the early morning and the late night shifts because the technology enabled us to do so and to slip into habitually that hyperactive hive mind workflow we're all suffering from it, but we don't know what the disease is and we don't know how to fix it.
0: And this, I think, is the key point and it's why people get frustrated by this topic and why people give up on this topic is that until you take that pill and see the matrix and realize that, oh, this is a way we chose to work to hyperactive hive mind, but there's other ways we could work instead. When you when you don't see the matrix, you don't recognize that and you're trying to just fix this problem in your inbox. It's a very appropriate metaphor for your podcast title. When you're just trying to be inside the inbox, like, I guess I need better habits, right? Like I need to, maybe I need to check my inbox less. You know, I'm just, I have bad habits or I need to use inbox zero or I need to I need to uh, have no notifications turned on or write better subject lines or, or adjust the norms in my organization on response time. When you try to solve this problem in the inbox, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. And why? Because everything in your organization, everything in your company requires the constant back and forth ball across the ping pong net in order to function. So every minute you're out of that, if that's the main way you collaborate, every minute you're out of that causes trouble. And this is why people get so frustrated because they can't they can't solve it in the inbox itself. Cuz anything they do is going to make them basically worse at their job. It's also why they have such a hard time until they see the matrix, imagining anything getting better because as long as you assume it's a given, well the hyperactive hive mind has to be the way we collaborate, then any attempt to try to increase or improve email overloads can be a problem. If you just start imagining, what if I stopped using email tomorrow without changing anything else, the wheels would come off the car. (laughs) You would would be fired within a day, right? And so people just get frustrated and give up because they're assuming the hyperactive hive mind is the only way to collaborate. And given that reality, there's not much you can do. You can't walk away from email. There's only so much you can tame it. But the, the red pill promise here is you can actually replace the hyperactive hive mind with other processes, other ways of collaborating that do not require a ton of unscheduled back and forth messages. That's when you, uh, I just watched the matrix the other day. So I'm really really stretching these oh, wow. things. That's when nice. you get, that's when you get a, that's when you get to get on the Nebuchadnezzar and <laughs> get away from the, the slack, the slack, like uh, incubator arms of the robots. <laughs>
1: To continue with this metaphor, uh, you know, the beginning of the movie before Neo meets up with Morpheus and and then takes the pill, there are moments where he starts to question what's going on. And I think for us as knowledge workers, we've in the past, I don't know, let's say 10, 15, 20 years been having moments like that where we feel like, OK, something's wrong and we kind of feel like we wake up to a point, but not. To the full extent. Let me give you an example. Um, Two phrases that I hear a lot, and then another that is more recent. So, three different phrases. One, this meeting could have been an email. This email should have been a meeting. And then another one, Zoom fatigue, all fit within that for me.
0: Well, we have to acknowledge, I don't know why we don't, we have to acknowledge the absurdity that in so many workplaces now, we have basically given over the entire workday. They're talking about work, right? So we went from, oh, I, I check my inbox too much to that's all we do is Zoom and email. And then when anything else has to get done, we have to do it at seven in the morning or you know, nine o'clock at night after the kids go home. If you look at this with any objectivity, if you looked at this from a time machine from you know 1985 looking to today or something like this, it would seem like a Kafka play, right? Like it's an absurdist metaphor for, you know, like the bureaucracy run amok, but it's actually our reality. And we and and we just, ex, we accept, except for when we have these Neo moments of this can't possibly be right, right? Are you saying that I'm going to spend nine to five sending messages and talking to people on Zoom about my work and then try to actually do things late at night? I, I saw a, I think someone sent me, I think it was a tweet. Someone sent it to me where, and I, I don't know how to attribute this, so I apologize, but it was basically someone saying I spent the last uh, year because of the pandemic working from home with my boyfriend. And if I didn't know from him, what his job was, I would have guessed that he works for a call center because all (laughs) he does is just sit there on zoom calls and and doing emails back and forth. Uh, It's crazy. And I think there's a lot of kind of Neos out there that are looking at this and saying, this can't be right, but you know, okay. The thing about the matrix though, was it was pretty hard to just casually figure out, Oh, maybe this is because, Robots destroyed the world. And this is all a electronic fantasy being piped into our brains. And we're really in this terrible dystopian future. Like that was a hard leap to make. Yes. And, and, and that's why I think that's why people have a hard time figuring out what to do with this unease because until you can leap to that point, that the hyperactive hive mind is not fundamental. And I'll tell you, here's the big, okay. If the big reveal in the matrix is that actually the world was destroyed and robots are now using us as batteries. The big reveal in this story is that not only is this hyperactive hive mind not fundamental, it's accidental. No one actually decided this was a good way to work. It's not good for anybody. No one chose it. No one likes it. In some sense, and this is very matrixy, I guess, the technology chose on its own, this is the way we're going to work. And so we do need to fight back. And the way we fight back is say, uh, wait, no one raised their hand to say this was a good idea. Why don't we try something else?
1: I couldn't help but think of driving. My approach up till this point has been, uh, well, I'll just do email differently or better, which is a failing, you know, premise. I'll I'll defensively drive better, I, you know. I'll be the better driver on the road, and and you know, just hope that everybody else does better by my example, which is is just ludicrous to think of. But then I also thought of um, the roundabout, and that that. It, that's more what needs to happen here is is that we as a we we collectively on a large scale change our ways but that that that's not going to happen uh overnight in fact it's going to happen in smaller to so, you know it it starts you know quote it starts with me um it is going to start with me, but it's not going to just start with me. It's going to start with me and my immediate two or three people or my immediate team or my immediate team silo within an organization or my immediate organization's interaction with other organizations, etc. But – I, I don't know that 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 was what I was thinking of as I was going through the first phase until we started to go into you know some of the the fix of the problem I guess in the book I'll, I'll be honest I still feel like I'm a little bit out of my depth after having finished the book it's a reread for sure, especially on the back end in terms of for the fix for the problem you do a great job painting the problem like Steve jobs always did, (laughs) but and creating that reality distortion field, although this is more of an awakening in a sense. So,
0: yeah, well, the fixes are hard Yeah. uh, and there's no one size fits all solution. I mean, the, uh, the worst question, you know, people ask me about the book is um, okay. Well, if it's not email, then what do we use instead? Right. (laughs) Right. Which, which completely highlights the, the, the uh, common lack of understanding of the real issue. Uh, and so it's it, yeah. So the whole second half of the book, like, let's explore some principles for what it might be like to rebuild your life, your solo entrepreneur endeavor, your team, your large company. What would it look like to rebuild this without the hyperactive hive mind? Let's give lots of examples. Let's focus on a bunch of different tools that might work. But there is no, there is no simple answer. Like, oh yeah, well you just got to switch from email to Slack or use Basecamp or because it's not a, it's not a tool question and it's not uh, it's not one size fits all. But I, I think this notion that Uh, we can't just solve it. Just looking at our own habits and trying to be a better driver is really important. I think getting that mindset's key. So there's an article I think your, your listeners will, will like, in particular, I wrote an article a few months ago for the New Yorker that used a lot of ideas from this book, but also introduced some new stuff that wasn't in the book. It focused on Merlin Mann, who I'm sure is very familiar. Right. And the article was called the rise and fall of getting things done. And the framing story of that piece is I spent some time with Merlin and I talked about how his arc, which I think represents the arc that we're all going to hopefully go through as a, a collective sector of the economy, is that he was overwhelmed by email as a project manager and project manager consultant in the tech space. He got really overwhelmed in the early 2000s. He got really convinced that, okay, if I can throw the right productivity tools at this deluge, I can get ahead of it right? So let me get David Allen. Great. I love David Allen. Getting things done will help. Well, what if I supercharge getting things done with the right tools? If I have really efficient, uh, quick silver macros, and if I'm using, you know, uh, kinkless GTD with my Omni outliner, if I just get the tools, if I could, if I just drive defensively enough, I will be able, I will be able to keep up with this onslaught, right? You know, it's my job to do. And I just have to be much more efficient. And this kind of reached its peak with his famous inbox zero speech. And, And then he just lost steam and realized, I can't stop. I can't keep up with this type of onslaught. Uh, It's quixotic to think just with tools and tips and hacks, uh, we have to actually fix the way we work. And he reinvented himself. He basically reinvented his job. He's now a professional podcaster. And the way he describes it is I built this job in such a way that I don't need any productivity tools, right? There is no overload. There is no overwhelming incoming mass of stuff I have to handle I have a I have a recording schedule, basically, right? And uh and and that's it. Like he, he basically he fixed the problem by changing the nature of the work, not trying to have the right tools to keep up with what was hard about the way we we're working. And there's something in that arc that I think is gonna tell the story of how we're all gonna get past this current moment of sort of peak hyperactive high mindness, is that we have to change the very nature of the game. We're not gonna be able to have just uh, better etiquette and and taps you know trips or, or or tips or tricks. I mean, look, Merlin was really good at that, right? I mean, he tried everything you could possibly try, uh, and it still wasn't enough to keep up with the standard email load. So, I, there's a great analogy in there for what I think we all eventually have to go through: is change what how the job works instead of trying to keep up with what's bad about the job as it is.
1: I'm very glad you mentioned that. I did read that article. I was. You know, kind of giddy reading it because it was like, Oh my gosh, you're talking with Merlin about this, which is the perfect person to talk about this with because I'd followed that drama back in the day and even, you know, heard him do a podcast episode uh, about him quitting writing the email book that he was supposed to have written back in the day. And, and I couldn't help but think that this is, you know, almost the inevitability uh, of that book. I mean, he couldn't write it and didn't, and then he lost interest and for good reason. And then you couldn't help but tackle it because it's where your mind was going with deep work and with um, digital minimalism. And like you said, it's kind of this magnum opus thing. It's it's almost prescriptive and non-prescriptive at, at the same time. The, the, the keys are here, but it's not going to be an overnight change. And I think – unfortunately, I think this is the case, is that this book is going to have to be around for a while in a – Oh, we discovered it kind of like, oh, my gosh, we're rereading Peter Drucker, like you quote a lot in this book, which I love also, by the way, that it's going to be one of those Peter Drucker type of works that's around for a while and then permeates the culture of knowledge work enough that the change starts to happen, unfortunately. At least that's my gut right now.
0: Yeah, no, I think I think you're right about that. I think it makes my publisher nervous, but that's my plan. Yeah, (laughs) like I don't think this is going to. Yeah, it's not going to leap out, leap out of the gate as like a major bestseller, right? Um, I think it is going to be, I'm, I'm, I want to convert minds. It's like a mind virus. One, one reader at a time, which by the way, I'm used to because it's what deep work did. Right. Deep work was a quiet launch. Uh, did a minimum of pro- of, of publicity around it kind of came and went not just kind of out there, not considered a very successful launch. I was sort of upset that even in some Barnes and Nobles, they weren't even bothering to stock it. Right. And then it just, kind of started spreading and there was never a week with deep work where it's like look we're number one on the new york times bestseller list there was never a blockbuster week but that thing has sold many many hundreds of thousands i think it's coming up to a million copies worldwide without ever having a big week right or a giant publicity thing of you know okay now it's being featured on you know the tim Ferriss show or something like that it just was mind virus <laughs> you know it's just sort of people read it and gave it to someone else and they gave it to someone else i think you're right this book is going to be like that i think people are having a hard time uh, when we're kind of putting out there, you're like, what is this? Right. Which I, th- I think is cool. I mean, maybe it hurts the the initial sales, but I think it's kind of cool. Like a world without email. Like, how is that even possible? Like, what is this thing? This is crazy, which I think is what makes it so cool. When someone finally picks it up and is like, okay, let me, let me look at this thing. And then that's when I hope that, you know, uh, in fact, yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 get it to spread. So I think your unfortunate truth is probably right. Um, this one, uh, this is there's a 10-year plan here, is my hope, which is why, by the way, you'll notice it, it's not, I'm not hyper, I mean, I'm specific. I give specific examples, but I'm, I'm trying not to be too hyper prescriptive. I did not go in and add pandemic-specific content because I, I'm um, I'm seeing a very long game for the book.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like this is, you know, like Ryan Hanley talks, or Ryan Holiday, I should say, talks about, it's a perennial Seller, This is going to be a long arc forward with this book and the impact of it in the same sense that like digital minimalism, your previous book, was kind of a precursor to the social dilemma that, you know, that came out. And then the social dilemma comes out like, what, a year and a half or more later on Netflix and is much more palatable. So, you know, I, I think that this is going to be. I, I shouldn't just, I just said that a Netflix show was more palatable than your book, and, and that is definitely not what I meant.
0: But <laughs> no, but it's true. And, and, but, and but which it's is, mass, by the way, it's yeah. mass
1: consumable, is what I'm saying in terms of the everyday person. Yes. And so that's almost what needs to happen here. And so I guess let's, let's dive in a little bit to, I mean, you do a great job painting the picture of the problem, and I really enjoy that. But I want to kind of give a little bit of keying into the fix of what, you know, what the solution is. Let's dwell on that. Let's let's ruminate on that. Let's even let's do a little bit of prescribing because I I think like you say in the book, knowledge work breaks down into these two components where we really have to start doing not only deep thinking and deep work on it, but actual execution, which is ironic that I just said that because it's work execution and workflow. So maybe break down what are those two halves to this?
0: Yeah, and and this is a a crucial distinction. Because one of the main reasons why the hive mind has stayed in place, even though it's not good for anyone, managers hate it because it makes them less profitable. Employees hate it because it's terrible. Like no one likes it. Why, why is it sticking around? Well, we have this insistence on autonomy in knowledge work. Productivity is personal. That's up to the individual. I don't care how you organize your work, how you get your work done. If you want to be more productive, listen to Eric's podcast Uh, as, as a company, we're just going to provide you with objectives crystal clear objectives, and you figure out how you want to execute. this is a, a sacrosanct idea in knowledge work. It came from Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker, who coined the term knowledge work in the mid 1950s, pushed this from the very beginning and throughout his 50 year career talking about this autonomy, autonomy, autonomy is crucial for knowledge workers, right? That's the backdrop against which we don't go in and try to tame the excesses of the hive mind because we're used to this notion of like, it's not up to me to figure out how people work. Individuals should figure out on their own, which is how you fall into this lowest common denominator method of collaboration, the end, which is the hyperactive hive mind. My big distinction is we can get out of this autonomy trap if we recognize that Drucker is right, but was being applied to generally. So he was right that the actual execution of work in most knowledge work positions is creative. It is skilled. It can't be reduced down to a, to a a sequence of steps that you blindly execute. We have to give people autonomy to do it. I cannot tell you how to write ad copy in a a six step process. I can't tell you how to write a computer algorithm with, you know, nine steps you follow sequentially. That's up to you. You do it. You're creative. You're skilled. That's what makes knowledge work uh, much more satisfying. But there's this whole other element, as you mentioned of knowledge work, which is the workflows that surround the execution. How we identify tasks, how we assign tasks, how we uh, collaborate or coordinate to get the necessary information from people to execute the task, how we check in on how tasks are going. That workflow that surrounds the execution, I argue, that should not be left up to the individual. Like We need to be thinking collectively about how do we actually want these workflows that surround the execution to actually function. And that's where you get at the hive mind. And so you can still maintain autonomy and execution, which is at the core of what makes knowledge work so much more satisfying than manual work for most people. But you can actually make that even more satisfying if we, if we do not leave the workflows up to the individuals and we start to think real critically about, okay, it's not just every man for himself here. What's the best way to actually figure out what stuff needs to be done and who's doing it and how we get them the information?
1: And and this is the thing that I think not, most organizations are not prepared to, um, it, it almost requires a retreat. Literally, like, all right, push pause on all that we're doing, which is kind of hard to do. And let's reassess and reevaluate what we're doing, not just what we're doing, but how we're doing it. You know, it's its why it's not a simple fix of like some people are saying, well, okay, if not email, what's the tool that I use? It's that's not you're trying to come up with the solution to the wrong question. Let alone ask the right question, and yeah. yeah, So it's it's frustrating sometimes to even start talking about this because I just know so many. Uh, I'll say managers, managers of knowledge workers, even don't have the head for this, and and aren't ready to tackle this. Unfortunately,
0: uh, yes, it's hard, um, and it's inconvenient, right? The 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 processes. I, I use the terminology process essentially. Like what I say is okay you can break down any knowledge work job or any team. And really there's a collection of processes, like things that they repeatedly do in which the members of that team come together and collaborate to produce some sort of valuable output at the end. And this process happens again and again and again, right? So we don't always name them. We don't think about it this way in knowledge work, but really each of our jobs, each of our teams, each of our companies, it's made up of these different processes, How do we implement these processes for most processes in most places? We just use the hive mind because it's flexible and it's convenient and it's easy. So yeah, the big picture solution is to name these things, triage them, but which of these do we, should we really be doing? And then for each say, how do we want to implement this? If not the hive mind where the goal is not to have the easiest solution. The goal is not to reduce friction as much as possible. The goal is not to, to, to minimize bad things happening as much as possible. It's not even to reduce the time required, the thing that you want to focus on based on all the research on context switching is reducing the numbers of unscheduled messaging required to execute the process. How can we implement this thing in such a way that minimizes how many times I'm going to have to wait for and see a message and send you one back. And you have to do this process by process. And it's a pain It is absolutely a pain. And what makes this harder, and this is what's been, I would say a like paradoxical about the pandemic is the pandemic was beneficial for this mindset, in the sense that it, it the, the shift to unexpected remote work made the hyperactive hive mind more hyperactive, which meant the pain point was even more acute. So it made the problem even more visible about how bad the hive mind is. The problem is, and this is why it's paradoxical. As I talked about in the book, when you're in a a period of having way too much stuff to do, you're in a terrible self reinforcing negative cycle where you don't have enough time to actually fix the processes. So you can only throw the hive mind at it, but the hive mind makes you worse at doing your work, and so you have even less time, and that's when things really spiral out of control. So that's where we are now. You're absolutely right. We're we're overloaded, and because we're overloaded, we don't have the space to actually fix the things that would make us much less overloaded. But I will I will preview my way out of that now by saying individuals can start this by themselves by simply identifying the processes that you are involved with as an individual, and asymmetrically optimizing them. So just given what you control. You know, I can't control anyone else. My boss hates Cal Newport, but just given what I can control and doing this subtly, not telling people, not giving a big lecture, not standing on your desk and saying, let me, here's, you know, Braveheart style, just using what you can control saying, how can I minimize the amount of back and forth messages required to do this process that comes up a lot? How can I minimize the back and forth messages required to do this process that comes up a lot? That alone can make a big difference. And then you get a little bit more space. And if enough people start doing that, then we get to a place where now we can step back and say, okay, as a team, let's now figure out what we can do as a team. And then you can really start to get some good solutions. But even just controlling what you can control with this process mindset, reduce messages, reduce messages, reduce messages. You can start right away towards a much better, a much better experience with your working life.
1: I think that you're dead on there because I think one of the things that stuck with me the most as I was going through the different examples and different, you know, attempts of change that you were giving examples of in in the, you know, t- basically telling stories of people trying to make change right now in the solution section of the book. Um, one of the things that just struck me on an individual level for myself was, you know what, I can't. And this goes back to that whole de- defensive driving thing. That, you know, maybe I do need to just focus on myself for now. And then, you know, it, it branches out into one one concentric ring circle beyond me but it, but it, what it struck me was this phrase of um minimize my context switches just yeah. as simple as looking for opportunities in my workflows and my and in the way I execute to to look for that first just start there for me that's my quick win
0: yeah and 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 the problem a lot of people had is they were instead saying how do i Minimize the time uh, I check my inbox, right? Without actually correcting the things that are generating the messages, drawing them to the inbox in the first place, and that's where they fail. When when they treat the inbox as a given and the messages in there as a given, and none of that can change, and they're like, okay, given that, how do I how do I deal with how do I deal with uh, communication overload? And they say, well, I'll, try, I'll, try, I'll check this less, and I'll I'll use inbox zero, and try to be faster when I check it, and I'll use auto auto fill. You know, auto fill text expander, so I can respond faster. Yes, and and that's futile, right? Because the the so the, so this is the hope for people who have been frustrated with their own defensive driving attempt. Here is that when you switch your focus from uh, how do I deal with this overwhelmed inbox faster, and instead you talk about how do I stop that inbox from getting so overwhelmed in the first place, it's a completely different ball game. I mean, and suddenly you can start to have results that really matter.
1: I think this is again. I think. This is unfortunately, like I said, one of those things where we can, we can continue to talk. I think this is the beginning of a conversation. Let me just say that more succinctly. I think this is definitely something that is going to have a groundswell effect. I think we're going to be feeling the ripples of this for a while. One, I want to point people to get, to get the book because if, you know, if you're a geek like me and Cal on this or not, I still think you can get something out of this book. And I think it needs to be in your library. But two, I know that you also started a podcast, which then may, might be more palatable for some people. And you obviously will slip in ideas from this book into the podcast episodes as you go, because people are asking you deep questions with Cal Newport.
0: Yeah. And a lot of those questions are on these topics. And, and you know, so I do two episodes a week and one is more general. And I take questions on a bunch of topics. So uh, work, but also like living a deep life and, and, and lots of different things like this. Uh, but then on Thursdays, I do this. I call it the habit tune up mini episodes and it's calls, right? It's like the Dave Ramsey. show, right. So it's like, it's, it's the actual voice of the listeners. And it's, it's usually very work-related and very concrete, like, Hey, Cal, whatever, long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, I'm being, my boss is come, you know, whatever. I, I have to answer all these emails about whatever all the time. And I'm having a hard time doing my work and let it's like, let's dive in and apply the ideas. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. If you want to see these ideas in action, the podcast, it's been fun because I get to talk to uh, a bunch of people every single week and get into it with real people and 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 real examples. And I've learned a lot from doing that, too. It's been really a great experience.
1: And I will, you know, confession, say I've not been subscribed up until very recently because I was like, oh, great. Yet another podcast that I know I'm going to have to listen to every episode and I don't have time for that. And so uh the long term, I said, well, I'm going to have to fit that in. And, and I think that's the cool thing is it's like, Starting to wrestle with this book and, uh, you know, your show recently and just a number of other things out there has brought me, in a sense, a renewed interest and even a deeper kind of perception of, you know, there's multiple angles on a lot of these things, and I want to continue to dig deep. Uh, Cal, I I love talking with you, and I definitely think that uh, we're probably going to have to have a follow-up episode to this topic. I mean, we did it with deep work, so I don't see why we can't, you know, circle back around and say, okay, is the world without email yet, Cal? And have you back on, so.
0: <laughs> yeah, which, which which I'm game to do. And let me say, by the way, this world is coming, right? I mean, to, to me, it's just a matter of, if you get out in front of it, you're gonna save yourself from some unnecessary misery and might have a huge competitive advantage. But the big shift I've seen since deep work until more recently is CEOs I talk to and investors i talk to especially in the tech sector they are recognizing that there are hundreds of billions of dollars of gdp on the table here because of how unproductive we're working and to be a, and to be a part of the solution that unlocks all this productivity not only is it going to be like a huge a huge win for the economy as a whole it's going to be hugely lucrative for the companies that help unlock all of this latent productivity. So with all of that economic pressure behind it, I think this transformation is coming I and mean, the world of work is going to look much better. We're going to enjoy it a lot more five years from now. The question is going to be where on that timeline do you actually start making those changes? And my push to people is like, might as well start today. Like, Might as well start that journey today because that's going to be you know one less day that you're completely drowning in the hive mind.
1: Yeah. And I'm on board with that. I, I knew I, I, again, like I, to go back to the matrix, I've been feeling something being off for a very long time. And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, it's also hustle culture and things like that. Well, I think hustle culture is a symptom of the hive mind, to be quite honest, you know? And so I'm on board. Uh We're definitely going to continue this dialogue, you know, here on this show, also you on your show. And uh, I think people are going to see it. A tipping point here happened. so uh, any last thoughts? I want to give you the last word here.
0: Uh, well, well you know I, I'll say uh, i'm I'm with you uh, on that uh, the the sort of implicit critique of the the hustle culture critique there 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 has been this big rise recently of a lot of critiques of like productivity culture and work culture, and a lot of the critiques are coming from this this sort of standpoint of like someone must be doing something wrong, right? like like we we feel someone's trying to exploit us right or trying to squeeze more work out of us or this or that. I think the actual thing that's making us so uneasy is less that there's a, a, a mustache twirling, cigar chomping, you know, uh, capitalist is trying to screw us as much as just like the way we're working is is becoming so terrible that it's unsustainable. And no one's happy about it. The the, the mustache twirling, cigar chomping, you know, uh, <laughs> capitalist is also unhappy because their company is really unproductive and the employees are unhappy because their lives suck. And so we all feel it and we're all grappling. For, I, I think you're absolutely right. We're all grappling for different explanations for like, what's wrong. Something's got to be going wrong. Why is our, is it our culture? Is it social media? Is it, is it, you know, evil people in the economy? Well, like what is happening here? And I think this is a thread that explains it all. The way we're working is not working. And that has become so pronounced that we can no longer ignore it. The pills are in front of us. I say, we take the red pill, attack the robots and build a future in which Slack plays a very little
1: role. Yeah. Uh, Well, the the book is called A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. I am definitely reimagining work right now, and uh, I'll link up to it in the show notes. The book is out now, and you should definitely pick it up. And uh, if you want to, if you pick it up, here, truthfully, if you pick it up and you want to talk more, tweet me. I know that's not what Cal would say because he doesn't use Twitter, but I would. I would love to start more, you know, micro conversations and maybe find a better place to have those than just out on social media. But for now, uh, Cal, it's been great talking with you. I can't wait to do it again soon. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks, Eric. I always love it. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your podcast listening to do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Cal. I love talking with him. Make sure to check out not only the book, but his previous books and his podcast, Deep Questions with Cal Newport. But especially don't miss the opportunity to join me and Cal on a soon-to-be-produced future episode of this very podcast. Head over to Twitter. I'll link up it, I'll link up to my account in the show notes, which you can find at list.com or in the show notes for this episode in your podcast player app of choice. Just click that button. Tweet me and or DM me your question so that I have those to go over them with Cal on this subject of the hyperactive hive mind workflow and the world without email book. If you found this conversation interesting or helpful in any way, please consider subscribing if you haven't already, but also sharing this conversation by hitting that share button in your podcast player app of choice or over on the site at beyondthetodolist.com. So if you just hit share button and did that, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing. But also, thanks for listening, and I will see you next episode.